This is a Triple J podcast. Pack. All right, picture this. You're at a gig, you see someone vaping and you ask them for some. A lot of you have probably done this before, but it's not nicotine. It's actually got a hallucinogenic drug in it instead. That's actually happened to people before. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder, and today on The Hack Podcast, we're going to hear why some experts are looking closely at how many people are vaping drugs. You're also going to hear about some athletes who want the Paralympics to make more space for people with intellectual disabilities. Hack. Australia needs an energy transition to make our energy system more reliable. This is panic policy by a government that realises they're not going to hit 82% renewables by 2030. On Triple Jack. In Australia, the way we power our homes and our workplaces and our shops, everything is still really dirty. And by that, I mean coal and gas. About a third of our power comes from renewables, and that has to change fast if we're going to tackle climate change. The federal government has a target to get renewables to over 80% by 2030, and we are a long way off there at the moment. So today, the federal government announced that they're going to be ramping up their policy to subsidise new renewable projects. Firstly, here's a bit of the Energy Minister, Chris Bowen. Hack. The biggest threat to our energy system at the moment is ageing coal-fired power stations, which break down sometimes unexpectedly, putting too much pressure on our energy grid. This will see Australia get to our target of 82% renewable energy, but will see our transition become more reliable, getting the investment, the job-creating investment on time. It'll see more reliable energy for our country. On Triple J. Find out more about how we got so far behind on that target and if this announcement is going to change things. I've got Kane Thornton with me. He's the CEO of the Clean Energy Council. Kane, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. How far behind are we at the moment with our renewable energy target? Yeah, so we've got a target of 82% renewable energy by 2030. At the moment, we're around the 35 to 40% mark. Uh, so we've got a lot to do over the next five or six years to get to that target. The announcement we've had today and the focus that we're seeing from governments, both federal and state governments, mean we're, we're pointing in the right direction, but we've certainly got work to do. So we've got to more than double it in the next, what, it's the end of 2023, so in, you know, seven years or something. I mean, there's quite a bit of activity underway and projects being progressed. State governments have been doing some some heavy lifting, but yeah, it's in the order of doubling it over the next five or six years, so we've, we've really got to get our skates on. Yeah, we just heard the Minister say that the biggest issue is around coal-fired power stations retiring. Does that also mean not just this target that we've set for ourselves in 2030, but we are really up against the clock for that reason? And this, I guess, all has to happen in a real coordinated fashion? There's a whole lot of drivers and factors at play here. One of them is clearly our old coal-fired generators, they're getting less reliable, they're getting older, some of them are you know, well beyond their life. And so they're going to keep falling over. They're going to keep coming out of the supply. And we need to be now putting new generation in. And clearly that's going to be renewable energy. You know, we've then got our target to 82%. That We've then got our, you know, our ambitions to reduce our carbon emissions, head towards net zero. And we also need to get off gas because we're still using uh, gas-fired power in our system that's really expensive uh, and it also has an environmental footprint. So there's a lot of reasons for us to want to accelerate our, our build out of renewables. 
What are the biggest delays at the moment with renewables? There's quite a few challenges at the moment, and I really put this down largely to the fact that most of the last 10 or 15 years we wasted. We were bickering about whether climate change was real or not. Uh, We were changing prime ministers. We weren't doing the heavy lifting, planning, reforming, getting ready for this renewables rollout. So today, the grid isn't really fit for purpose. It needs to be built out and refined. Our planning and environmental rules and laws aren't fit for purpose. They need to be improved. They need to be refined to better allow and provide certainty for renewable projects and get that balance right. We need to develop and skill up the workforce. We're going to need a lot of workers to build these projects. We need to be working harder to bring people into the industry and skill them up. So they're just some of the challenges. And, and the other one is that We are now in a a global arms race for clean energy. Every other country in the world is putting big targets down, they're putting big incentives down, and Australia needs to compete with those other countries. Yeah, when the Biden administration introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, it has put billions and billions of dollars into their renewables industry. It's like the biggest climate policy in the whole world. And there is that concern that we are losing investors to America because it is just a better market for them. Is that exactly what's happening? Yeah, it absolutely is. What the US did was absolutely groundbreaking. It changed the world. And so what we've seen as a result of that is, as you say, both investment but also technology supply and workers have been drawn to the US out of Australia. The other thing that's happened is pretty well every other country in the world has seen what the US have done and said, we need to take similar action. And so there's now huge targets, huge incentives in many other parts of the world, in Europe, across Asia, in South America, etc. So it's a massive global race. And if Australia doesn't take big action, we risk being left behind. You're listening to Hack. I'm Joe Lauder. I'm filling in for Dave Marchese today. And I'm speaking to Kane Thornton. He's the CEO of the Clean Energy Council. Kane, today the federal government announced that they're expanding this capacity investment scheme to address some of these issues that we're talking about. Can you just explain to me how this scheme works? It's a massive commitment for, for the, from the government and they're to be congratulated for their leadership. This is the sort of response that we need uh, to put us back in the game. How it works is basically government will offer contracts to renewable energy companies if they're developing either batteries or other storage projects or now new renewable projects like wind and solar farms. Those companies will tender into the government and government will, for those who are successful, government will enter into a contract which will basically provide them some confidence and some further revenue uh, into the future. So once they've built their project, they're able to enter into that contract and have government provide some certainty around the revenue that they'll get that investment back. And so this is essentially taxpayers underwriting these kind of um, projects? Yeah, it it is. It'll be funded from our federal budget via taxpayers. And the extent to which it is taxpayers funding will in part depend on exactly what's happening in the market, what prices companies bid into. You know, renewable energy is becoming increasingly cost competitive. It's the lowest cost form of new generation. We hope and expect prices and costs will continue to trend down. So we don't expect it'll be a big contribution from taxpayers, but uh, it's really important to help give the investors the confidence uh, that Australia is the place they, they should invest and build their next wind or, or solar projects. Kane, is this enough to get us to our renewable target? 
It's certainly a big shot in the arm. This has been the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle as far as the role for government. It's a big, ambitious commitment from government. Um, there is detail to work through to make sure that it works and it, and it delivers uh, what it needs to, but this is exactly what we were calling for to make sure that Australia is back on track and investors can now have the confidence to, to make those projects happen in Australia. What are the consequences if we don't? And to be clear for the audience as well, this target, this renewable energy target is different from our overall climate targets, but obviously they're very much very interconnected. The consequences are enormous if if we don't deliver enough new renewable energy in coming years. We've firstly seen um, power prices go up pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. And in part, that's because we're very reliant on coal and gas uh, and we haven't built enough renewables. So if we don't bring the renewables on, power price is going to keep going up. If we don't bring the renewables on, when those old coal power stations start to fall over, then the lights may not stay on. And so we need to keep bringing in that new supply. And then, of course, our climate change commitments. Australia's got a massive job to do. We've got a big carbon footprint. We need to turn that around and turn it around quickly. And renewable energy and this policy is clearly central to, to making that happen and making sure we meet our commitments. Kane, there was a whole period in Australia where we did see a lot of community opposition to renewables projects. And that does seem to have changed quite a bit. But now there is this growing opposition to transmission projects. And these are, as you were saying, these are essentially the projects that build like the huge power lines that connect these like say wind or solar farms to our homes. Is there enough being done to address these community concerns about these projects? Yeah, I think it's an area that the industry needs to work harder on and is very focused on at the moment. The reality is we do need to build more transmission lines across the country. That's going to be a critical part of the future of delivering lower power prices, of ensuring reliability of supply. I think what it requires is the industry and particularly those transmission businesses to be really focused on how they go about doing this. How do they engage with landholders? How do they work with local communities? How do they make sure that the routes they select are as sensitive as they possibly can be? How do we make sure that the landholders who are being impacted are treated fairly and reasonably and appropriately? So I think these are things we need to get really right, accepting that you know at the end of all of that, there will be some people who rather a transmission line didn't go across their property. But at the end of the day, this is in the national interest. These things are critical to our future as a nation and they do need to happen. Kane, thanks for making the time to come on Hack. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's Kane Thornton from the Clean Energy Council on the text line. Someone just asking about those protests. They're saying they're massive protests in Victoria at the moment around new power lines. How's that going to impact our targets? Someone else says, woo, climate action now. Coal and gas can piss off. And then someone else says, Pedro says, hi, Joe, I know the reason why the clean energy target is behind. It's called nine years of the LNP. Hack. Did anybody else not realise that there were drugs in the vapes until it was too late? On Triple J. Yeah, there's been so many news stories about young people being addicted to vapes, sucking on them in toilets at schools or choosing to vape these days instead of smoking cigarettes. But have you ever vaped something other than nicotine? Let me know on the text line 0439 757555 because there's a bit of a growing trend of young people vaping different kinds of drugs. There are forums online all about it. There's heaps of TikToks talk of people talking about accidentally vaping something like DMT and they were thinking it was just a regular nicotine vape. 
But there's actually not a whole lot of research around this method of drug use or what the kind of health risks might be around it. April McLennan has this story. But if you just have like a, a vape, you can just go and just do it so easily. I'm chatting with George, which isn't actually his real name. I'm not going to tell you what that is and it will become clear why in just a moment. Anyway, we're talking about his experience with vaping. I generally get a bit of like heart beating. It's like my body like kind of knows something's going to happen. And then on the exhale, generally your visual field is disrupted. You might you might have really pleasant body sensations as well. As you might have guessed, we're not talking about vaping nicotine. George vapes different kinds of drugs like THC. That's the major psychoactive component in cannabis and DMT, which is a hallucinogen. I can't actually remember the first time I did it. It probably would have been someone giving me some on a dance floor at a festival. Um, That might have been about 2018, I think. And yeah, that was just like in a sort of a vape. And then I was doing it a lot with uh, me and a few other friends. Do you think like some people are choosing to vape things like DMT instead of doing it a traditional way because it's like less likely that they're going to be caught by the cops and things like that? Because it's, is it hard to identify? Could be. I think it's more just ease of use. I mean, yeah, I guess so, but I kind of don't want them to know, so maybe don't say that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. It's like the same with, with weed. You're like, yeah, I guess it's, you could just pass over as a nicotine vape unless you knew the smell. We know vaping's become more and more popular right around the world, but so is experimentation. TikTok's filled with people talking about vaping different types of drugs. Vaping is getting increasingly yeah. popular, yeah. and within the cannabis community, it is getting ever so popular as well. And thinking about how easy we have it these days with those little DMT vape pens that are so popular now. The first time I smoked DMT, I was 17 years old, and I didn't have anything to smoke it out of. So I knew what I needed to get and went to a sketchy head shop in search of a crack pipe. I came across this thread and a guy was asking if there was a way he could convert his vape to smoke crystal meth. I was thinking, man, why are we looking for better ways to do meth? Are the old ways not working? You're not getting high enough? Because you look like you're getting high enough, man. But there's serious warnings about the dangers of vaping drugs. Last week, a South Australian teenager went to hospital because he was having seizures and was unconscious for 15 hours after using a vape that was laced with DMT and THC. We don't know a lot of the risks because this area is so unstudied, particularly around something like DMT out of a vape. That's Robert Taylor. He's from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. We do know, for example, that in the US um, a couple of years ago, there were some lung injuries, um, some quite serious lung injuries as a result of people using THC vapes that had a particular type of vitamin E acetate in it that resulted in a lot of hospitalizations. So there are these risks, and particularly when you're accessing a product that's completely unregulated, there are huge risks, and particularly if you're inhaling, we know our lungs are really sensitive. Robert says the lack of data around vaping drugs makes it hard to know just how widespread it is. So in places like Canada, where cannabis is legal, THC vapes are quite common. People can buy them pre-packaged and they come in different strengths, different product types. It's it's not unusual. Um, The use of vapes for uh, illicit substances like DMT, which is quite a potent psychedelic, That's more unusual, Um, that's quite a specialty thing, and for someone to do that, they're gonna need to actually make that themselves. So it's not something you buy off the shelf. 
There's also been reports of people using someone else's vape without knowing it contained drugs. When I accidentally got dosed with DMT at a Rufus DeSoul concert, somebody had it in a f***ing vape. Who puts DMT in a vape, first of all? Thanks for dropping me off at my girlfriend's house. Can I hit your vape before I go? Yeah, dude, here you go. Thanks. Wait, wait, what is this? It's weed. Dude, I don't smoke. I'm about to go meet my girlfriend's parents. Robert says this is actually a form of spiking because it involves giving someone a substance without their consent. So the advice from experts here is don't take a vape from someone unless you're sure you know what's in it. And if you decide you want to vape drugs anyway, Rob has some words of wisdom to help keep you safe. If you are using a drug for the first time, we'd always recommend doing it with someone you know, doing it in a safe setting and always starting low and going slow if you do choose to do that. Hack on Triple Jack. That was Hack Reporter April McLennan with that story. Got a bunch of messages on this. One person was saying, I was at a small boutique festival last weekend and everyone there was vaping drugs. Someone else says, yeah, I vape my medical cannabis as part of the doctor's orders. Someone else, if someone gives you their vape and they doesn't, they don't tell you that there's drugs in it, especially if it's something like DMT, that person's a scumbag. Uh, another message as well. A lot of people underestimate the hallucinogenic potential of DMT. And then just lastly, someone said, yeah, I've... I've smoked and vaped DMT and it is pretty putrid and quite can be quite intense but different to smoking. All right, let's move on. Hack. It's a bit like a, a chook raffle for a world champion if that doesn't pass the, the pub test. On Triple Jack. Yeah, when you think about the pinnacle or the very, very top of sporting achievements, I reckon most of you are thinking about the Olympics, right? For athletes with a disability, it's the Paralympics. And for heaps of athletes, this level of competition is a major goal for them. But the current way that the Paralympics classifies athletes with a disability can make it really hard for athletes who have Down syndrome and some other intellectual disabilities. It makes it really hard for them to be able to pursue sport at this level. Reporter Lucy Cooper has been speaking with some young athletes who are calling for changes to make sure everyone has a fair go getting into the, the Paralympics. Driving around his family's cattle station on the buggy, dogs riding happily in the tray, Sam Lafer is totally in his element. What do you like about the farm? What do you like about home? Cow, feed dog, and hide the pig. Hunting pigs? Yeah. You go mustering, you run the dogs, feed the dogs. That's Sam's mum, Teresa, there. Sam also loves to run, and around here on their property near Charters Towers in North Queensland, there's plenty of space to practice. 17 years ago, I got the absolute surprise, or I might say shock of my life, <laughs> when Sam was born. Um, and then the next day, the doctors came around and we, they said, oh, look, we're 99% sure that your baby's been born with Down syndrome, which I had no idea what that involved or what it was. So I was like, oh my goodness, you know, and oh, so I got ready to handle this burden. But guess what? The burden never really came. <laughs> and um, yeah, fast forward 17 years later, and I'm tagging along to France with him. The last year for Sam's been a bit of a whirlwind, really. He's gone from running around the property with his dogs to competing on the world stage. Here he is racing in the Virtus Global Games in France a few months ago. 
The Games are held every four years and they offer athletes with an intellectual impairment the opportunity to compete at an elite level. Sam, who has Down syndrome, raced for Australia in the 1 and 200 metres, shot put and long jump events. And he even came away with a bronze medal. When you went over there, were you nervous? No. Was there lots of people? Was mum screaming? <laughs> Me, Ethan, dancing. You and Ethan were dancing. You're supposed to be running. <laughs> Shoulder press, let's go. Nice and quick. Go. One, two. Three. But it took a lot of training to get there, and it all started back at home in North Queensland. Here's Sam's coach, Leslie. While it's been a learning curve for me, obviously what I'm doing is working because his times are gone from 15 seconds to just under 14 seconds in 100 metres, which is pretty impressive in, in the space of 12 months. But for Sam, athletics was actually the answer to another challenge. I was driving along and I just thought to myself, I really need to find Sam some peers. You know, he's getting older and everyone needs to be in contact or connected to somebody who has things in common. And he did exactly that. I um, live on a farm. I got a puppy called Missy, Chuck Russell. So I want to introduce you to Sam's relay teammate, 22-year-old athlete Hugo Tahini. But he likes to go by Hugo Rockstar. He's here with his mum, Louise. Two records in Shopwood, Simon Dixes. Hugo also holds a 4 by 100 metre um, world record How with Sam and Ethan. The team with Sam, Ethan and the guys, it's like I start helping them and they help me. What kind of friend is Sam to you? Like he told me about he got same things I got. He told me about he got Joe Russell, I got same, he got a buggy, I got same buggy. We both got Sisters, same name. Me and him, like, start talking and come along friends. The two boys from the bush have come a long way and they want to go further. But here's the problem. What's our future aspirations? Do you want to break the world record? Yes, break yeah, the world record. Break the world record? <laughs> at, at the moment, there's no pathway for um, T21 or Down syndrome to the, pa- uh, to the Paralympics. While Hugo and Sam can compete at the Virtus Games and Special Olympics, which is all about inclusion of all abilities, currently there's no specific classification for athletes with Down syndrome at the Paralympics. Sam, Hugo and sports inclusion advocates say the way it currently works, where Down syndrome athletes may be eligible to try out in the intellectual impairment category, isn't fair and say the current categories aren't a good representation of athletes with Down syndrome. Here's Louise again, Hugo Rockstar's mum. Currently there isn't a pathway for Hugo or Sam or Ethan, athletes like the the boys living with Down syndrome. What's your dream, Hugo? This is my serious dream, like Dad said. I can't have a pathway, my own or my friend. And he talks a lot about just wanting to have a fair go. He's a person first, not a Down syndrome person. We are people, they are people too. What I'm saying 
we are eagle. Give us a fair go. Hack on Triple J. Lucy Cooper reporting there. Now, to find out a bit more about this, I've got the CEO of Sports Inclusion Australia, Robin Swift, Smith, with me. Robin, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Not a, pr- not a problem. Can you just start by explaining the categories for intellectual disabilities and Down syndrome at the Paralympics and how that works? So um, at the moment in the Paralympics, there is a classification for intellectual impairment, which is uh, in athletics, swimming and table tennis. So if an athlete with um, uh, intellectual impairment qualifies in that, they can compete. Um, Currently, that has become incredibly competitive. So uh, some athletes with Down syndrome cannot compete at that level. So Virtus has um, uh, worked to include another classification at, at the Global Games and the elite level. Um, and I must correct that it, it is not participation at the Global Games. Virtus is not a participation agency. It's actually the, the organisation is about elite performance. Um, so all of the basketballers and the rowers and the cyclists where there's no pathway to the Paralympics, the Virtus Global Games is the, the top that they can do. So um, there are many athletes with an intellectual impairment that don't have a pathway through to the Paralympics. Having said that, Virtus started to um, develop an opportunity for athletes like Hugo and Sam, um, but it has to be uh, classified to get into the Paralympics. It has to be an impairment classification not a syndrome. So we've tried really hard to do the research um, and we're not far away from it being completed. And so that the II2, which will include Hugo and Sam, um, will put an application forward to see if that category can be included into the Paralympics. Um, I must say that there's not uh, many opportunities for any athletes with intellectual impairment into the Paralympics. And that's something that Virtus is lobbying hard for to improve that. Um, But certainly um, athletes with Down syndrome are not forgotten and on our radar. Have you had conversations with the Paralympics about why it's like that and why um, maybe it hasn't changed already up until this point? Um, I actually sit on the International Paralympic Committee governing board. So I have many conversations at morning tea and lunchtime and and after meetings about the need to make sure the Paralympics is uh, more diverse. Uh, and I know it is definitely part of the uh, strategic plan of the IPC. Uh, so we're working hard. I think it's probably started from Sydney 2000, um, where we had the ban on athletes with an intellectual disability because of the Spanish basketball team. Um, and For it's people taken that us- don't know, sorry to jump in, what happened there with okay. the Spanish basketball team? So there were people that played for the Spanish basketball team of players with an intellectual impairment that didn't actually have an intellectual impairment. They were degree qualified. Um, And so um, the ban was on all athletes with an intellectual disability, which lasted 12 years until they were re-included in um, 2012. Okay, right. Got a text message here from someone from Chris in Newcastle. They say, that's so good to hear. My two and a half year old son has Down syndrome and it's so good to think of these opportunities that he's going to have as he gets older. I really hope that a pathway to the Paralympics becomes even more possible. Um, Robin, looking beyond just the international stage as well, what's the current situation in Australia with community sports and how well they cater for people with intellectual disabilities? 
So Sport Inclusion Australia has been working on this since um, the mid-80s. Um, there's about 20 sports now that just provide inclusive opportunities. Um, if they want to participate and have fun, they can go to Special Olympics, but national sporting organisations are now including high-performance pathways. Um, I guess because of the work Virtus has done in the II2 area, which includes athletes with Down syndrome, um, we're currently working on those three areas uh, in athletics, swimming and table tennis because they're the Paralympic, we've, we've tried to work in that area. Um, I'm proud to say that Tennis Australia has included events at their national event for athletes with Down syndrome or II2. Uh, table tennis has, swimming has, um, and we're working with athletics. Um, they have included some events too. So Hugo and Sam can comp compete at the, the athletics nationals. Um, we have to work a little bit because they're mainstream organisations and they're trying to do the right thing in cater. There needs to be some tweaks to make sure that the qualification is not too difficult. But um, I know Hugo for a fact has broken world records at national athletic events in Australia. So it raises the profile of how good the athletes are. I loved um, the program on 7.30 report last night, which is focused on Sam's ability, um, which is what you know, any athlete deserves to be recognised for their ability and, and as someone said, that, you know, the disability is, is irrelevant when they're so good at what they do. And just lastly, Robin, um, just before we hit the news, but is funding also something that is a big issue in this space as well as Pathways? Um, look, I, I think in Australia we're quite lucky. Is everything totally funded? No. Um, but, you know, we don't have a huge population and, and I'm currently under doing, doing something at the moment and it's a small country. We have a great sport program. Um, it could always be improved, but we work really hard on it, Sport Inclusion Australia, to make it more equitable. Thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate you coming on, on Hack and having a chat. My absolute pleasure, Joe. Hack on Triple J. That was Robin Smith and she's from Sports Inclusion Australia. That's it for Hack. Dave's going to be back tomorrow for the shake-up. Bye.